It's always a telling moment with technology. You turn it on, you're like, <laughs> it's always good when your notes show up. Back in uh, Hollywood, early on, I gave a lecture, and uh, my iPad wouldn't connect, wouldn't turn on. All my notes were there, and I was sitting there all flustered, and someone from the audience just yelled out the most horrible thing. He's like, use paper. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the work starts as soon as you open your eyes in the morning. Hopefully you got some good rest last night. Why go into the city or the fields without first kissing the friend who always stands at your door? It only takes a second. Habits are human nature. Why not create some that will mint gold? Your arms are violin bows always moving. I have become very conscious upon whom we all play. Thus my eyes have filled with warm, soft oceans of divine music where jeweled dolphins dance and leap into this world. This topic this morning is a, an interesting one because uh, I'm bringing in a lot of secular stuff for the first time. So it's an experiment on my part, an experiment in communication to see what I, <laughs> whether I can get these ideas across or not. And uh, I'm going to turn the lights on in here. <laughs> but before we start, as always, we're going to go into my mantra, my, my threefold path of most important things. Uh, my, my little hodgepodge bag of stuff I've put together, I guess, over the years from the scriptures and from life itself. And the first always comes from our beloved Takor uh, when he promises us, gives us the guarantee that if, uh, if you proceed with sincerity and earnestness in your path, in your work, in your spiritual life, if you've got sincerity and earnestness, that no matter what else you don't have going on, God himself will take charge, will take control uh, of your spiritual life and bring you along, uh, and bring you what you need to get to where you want to go. So it's always a commitment on my part whenever I get up here and have the gall to, to teach or to preach like this, to come from a place of sincerity and earnestness in myself and uh, really depend on Takur and Maad and uh, to, to lead us in the right way and to cover anything that might be <laughs> misspoken or missaid in our lives. So work on that sincerity. Make that commitment this morning. Sincerity and earnestness in the way you deal with each other this morning, in the way you hear the things we talk about this morning, and in the way that you view your own, your own progress and your own life to come from that same place. And the second, I always go to Jesus. Uh, when, when asked by the Pharisees what the most important thing in spiritual life was, he said, love. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why? Because of that oneness, of course, that's in all of us. So it's a call this morning to commitment. If, regardless of what I say this morning or what, what we hear or what kind of things go on, if, if those two things are in place, it will be a fine time together this morning. 
you know, to practice that ideal of love with each other when you greet each other, when you see each other. Uh, you know, I, I often point out that we're here as a sangha, and a sangha is a, a support group, really, a group of people getting together to, to try and reach their highest ideal in themselves. And uh, because of that commonality between us, we have an assumed level of intimacy that I don't think we practice very often with each other. But we can say things, and we can say endearing things and encouraging things and helpful things to each other uh, beyond what we might say to other strangers, you know, if we don't know each other, and certainly to each other as, as friends and common seekers. So be committed. Together, let's make a vow for love this morning to approach the lesson and the divine in that spirit. And then the final, of course, is truth, again from Takor, sitting on the banks of the Ganga, doing one of his famous practices of throwing the pairs of opposites into the river and wanting only pure love for God in return. Here's your good and here's your bad and, you know, all of the pairs of opposites. You can sit there and go on all day because uh, that's really what this life is about to the unenlightened. It's just bouncing back and forth from the pairs of opposites, from happiness to sadness, from entertain to boredom, just back and forth, work and relax. And uh, Takor was throwing them all away in search of pure love for God. And uh, when he came to truth, he couldn't throw it away. He couldn't say, here's truth and here's your untruth, because he knew that uh, truth is fundamental to the path. It's part of our nature and uh, that we can't see clearly without it. So it's a commitment to truth this morning. So with that... I want to jump into modern art. Uh, it's been one of my one of my closet enjoyments, and it's coming it's coming out of the closet this morning as an enjoyment of mine because I found that that uh, Vivekananda shared it a great deal, a love of art, and uh, for me especially modern art because it's so quirky and so ill-behaved and so odd, and uh, also because I had no idea what it was about um, when I was. Uh, <laughs> When I was in college, I mean, I was, a, I was a computer science major, and so I had no humanities classes, hardly at all, I mean, except for the remedial English and whatnot. And so after I graduated and I started working for the university, one of my perks was that I got to take free classes. And so I thought, well, what does one do with free classes? You, you take a subject that clearly you're never going to make any money off of. <laughs> so I took an art history class for the fun of it, really, just, just because it was so obtuse and such an odd angle for where I normally came from. And uh, it, changed, it changed my perspective of a lot of things, but certainly of modern art. Uh, I had no idea. I was one of those, uh, you know, born and, and uh, died rednecks <laughs> in my opinions of modern art. You know, I was like, yeah, my, my five-year-old brother did something like that. You know, it was on the fridge for years. And uh, that was how I thought about it. And uh, this class gave me a new context, uh, a new understanding of why these paintings were significant, why you could paint a color, just a, one color on a canvas, and, uh, and have it become a pinnacle piece in the art world. Um, there are reasons and ideas behind those things. And I wanted to explore them. And uh, part of the idea comes from, uh, in the late 1800s, around the same time that Vivekananda came here, uh, the modern art world, which really didn't quite exist at that point, was, was about to get a spark, uh, faced a real challenge. And uh, the challenge was the camera. The camera, or the daguerreotype at the time, was invented. And up until that time, art in the West, anyway, uh, was primarily having to do with record-keeping. You know, famous uh, people or 
kings and aristocracy would have their pictures painted as a matter of record to hang in the family hall, you know, of heirs and and patriarchs, you know, or to remember lovers or whatnot. And so it was a very highbrow thing, a matter of historical record and perspective. And so the ideal of painting was just to capture reality, you know, for a memory. There wasn't, there's not a whole lot beyond that, aside from religious scenes being painted for the same reason. So along came the camera, and, uh, you know, it, it was a kind of a funny time because uh, on the Smithsonian website, uh, they quote uh, 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 Paul Delaroche, who was a famous, I guess, uh, painter at the time in, Fran- in France when the daguerreotype came along. He said, from today, uh, painting is dead. <laughs> so he said, you know, there's no use for it anymore. It's not around anymore. And it was thrown into uh, a real state of, of disrepair of what to do. What are you going to do about this? Because you have all these painters that still have to make a living or still inspired by their art, but really no purpose. The central purpose for their, for their theme had been taken away. And the way that modern art deals with this crisis is very interesting. And uh, there's quite a few artists that came along and explored different avenues. And I want to take those means of facing that challenge to their art to kind of uh, our context of facing the same challenges to religion these days. You know, we're living in a, in a world where uh, religion, uh, well, at least by the younger generation, is really being challenged uh, in this country anyway. Is it, is it even a proper to be religious, you know? Does religion have anything to offer the world? I mean, from their world, you know, we've, Religion has been the center of war now for 20, 23 years. You know, even these acts of terrorism get blamed on religion. You know, and these these things, these these uh, misunderstandings of political situation get blown up. And uh, religion is suffering quite a bit for it today. Uh, we see a lot of younger folks that are they're taking the tagline, you know, to I want to be spiritual and not religious, which, you know. If that was true, that's a great thing. I hope that. Who, who can know if that's true or not? But you know, anybody who, who, who's ever left the monastery while I was around always said, well, I'm going to still keep my spiritual life in my bowels and <laughs> whatnot, because that makes walking out the door a lot easier. <laughs> but once you're out the door, it's like, what vows? Right, what was that? So spiritual, not religious, I imagine in a lot of cases is probably just an easy way to get out of the door without having to feel the pain of that. But uh, nonetheless... I want to, to 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 challenge us to do what these painters did in in these early days and to kind of take a new look at the way uh, religion is, what our spiritual lives are, how we live in the modern world, and based on that, to determine does spiritual life have a value? Does it play a big enough part in your life that you could honestly tell a young person, yes, spend the time I spent on it, it has added this to my life, it's done this for me, you know, or to have a young person just come up and ask you, wow, you're, you just seem like you're really together, you're a really nice person, do you have a secret? And if you have a secret, you tell them what that is. But one of the things I found out while jumping into this is that it's not unusual for, uh, for people who are interested in spiritual things to have an artistic bent to them. And actually, uh, the master says, uh, Vivekananda said, that the artistic faculty was highly developed in our Lord, Sri Ramakrishna. And he used to say that without this faculty, one can, uh, without this faculty, none can be truly spiritual. 
So to at least have an interest in art and music and, uh, you know, the, the, even the theater. I mean, we have examples of him also going to the theater and whatnot. I, I think that quite often we're afraid of getting trapped in the world, and so we cut off the, the whole thing. When really, I think that that comes from a place of fear. That's not a healthy attitude to have at all. You know, Takor went out there and learned of God by looking at these things. Uh, in some of the readings that we're going to look at this morning, Vivekananda, you know, he went to the Louvre. And uh, from, from just his visit to the Louvre, he put together a wonderful synopsis of Western culture and Western history, you know, that gave him a context for where he was and what his message should be and, and uh, what his life, what his values were, and to compare and contrast for what was going on uh, in the world at the time. So uh, that's why I say this, you know, coming out with this love of art, it's like it's a permission to go, you know, go down uh, and take a look at these different art museums around here. We've got uh, some great vetted art uh, <laughs> here in D.C. I say vetted art. Because, I mean, it's a very uncreative culture here, it seems, in, in general, in general kind of way. And the art is great, but it's all been highly vetted. You know, in San Francisco, you go to an art gallery sometimes, you're not real sure what you're going to walk out with. I mean, there's no vetting. You know, it's a lot of folks just ground-level artists putting their stuff out there. And San Francisco is very open to that and likes that kind of wrestling. But I've seen some... Forgive me for saying, I've seen some real trash, you know, from that. You're not going to run into that here. The Smithsonian's pretty much covered that area. They're, they're taking care of it. But they're not going to charge you either to go in, you know. The master says, he's, he's talking to an actor at one of the theaters after the play. He went up and he says, your acting was very good. He says, if a person excels in singing or music, dancing, or any other art, he can also quickly realize God, provided he strives sincerely. So he, again, is talking about uh, uh, the, the advantages of getting involved in the arts, working on your creative sides. He says, just as you practice much in order to sing or dance and play on instruments, so one should practice the art of fixing the mind on God. One should practice regularly such disciplines as worship and japa and meditation. So he's talking about a lot of the habits that you need in order to excel at art, to be good at art, or uh, not even to be good at art, but just to produce art. It uh, causes you to think. It causes you to take things deeper. You know, the master is always encouraging us, dive deep, O oh mind. That's where the real gems lie. You know, not to have a surface life that kind of skips along. Swamiji makes a wonderful point. Um, and we'll, we'll, I'll read it later on as soon as I find it. But <laughs> I'm going to make the point now anyway, where he says... Um, he says that without that kind of depth of thinking, without that kind of uh, analysis going on in your life, you're basically, your life, uh, without you knowing it, becomes a slave to somebody else. He says everybody that works without that awareness, everybody that works just kind of in that automatic routine kind of mode, their life really is about slavery. You know, if it's, if it's not just a slavery to their own desires, just a slavery of having to earn enough money to keep the movies coming, you know, to keep the pizza flowing. You know. If it's not a, a life just geared at pushing the money into the mortgage, you know, so the house stays where it is. Uh, that that if, you, if you give into that kind of life, that, that really there's, there's not much inspiration in that. There's not, much, there's not much beauty in that. There's not much art in that. So it's something to fight against. 
and by exposing yourself to new ideas and uh, you know hitting a few galleries and uh, taking a look at some art and deciding what you like and what you don't like and then educating yourself to understand what it is uh, that you're looking at is very important because down you'll go down to the the modern art museum down there and a lot of that stuff you'll think you're looking at trash. <laughs> you, you may, in fact, be looking at trash. But uh, there's a point to it. There's a reason that it's sitting there. So I want to explore art, this art movement, in the face of the camera when it was struggling to find out what it was and to try and come up with some ideas uh, about uh, uh, how to revitalize our spiritual life, how to revitalize our walk with the divine, how to inject some life into that. Our first artist is going to be Mondrian, because I think probably most people have heard of him. And if you haven't, certainly you've seen something of his work. He's the guy that kind of did a black grid of oddly spaced lines, 90 degrees, and then used three primary colors, red, yellow, blue, and actually white also, but we won't count that as a color. So he just basically painted like, you know, areas in the grid, one of these three colors of different sizes and whatnot, different grid relations, and put that forward as art. Okay, now you've got to put him in a context. You know, you put him back there in in the the late 1700s, early 1800s. You know, that's another thing about modern art is it's not quite as modern as (laughs) as you think. So you go back to this period of time when all art has been, you know, rich ladies in fine gowns and aristocratic men on horses, you know, all very gallant. And you walk into a gallery and you see a grid on canvas with a yellow and a red and a blue. And and you would look at that. What in the world is going on? (laughs) What is this nonsense? But for Mondrian, he was trying to investigate what is painting. He was reducing it to to its fundamentals. Okay, there's line. You know, there's angle, there's three primary colors, and white. So those are the fundamental pieces of, of, of art, of a painting. Can I create beauty out of those simple pieces, you know? So it goes on. It says, Mondrian's art, and this is an interesting point here. I didn't know this about Mondrian. He was basically a Vedantist. Mondrian's art was intimately related to his spiritual and philosophical studies, in 1908, he became interested in the theof- theof- <laughs> Theosophical movement launched by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky in the late 19th century, and in 1909, he joined the Dutch branch of the Theo- Theosophical Society. The work of Blavatsky and a parallel spiritual movement, Rudolf Steiner's Anthroposophy, significantly affected the further development of his aesthetic. Blavatsky believed that it was possible to attain a more profound knowledge of nature than what was provided by empirical means, and much of Mondrian's work for the rest of his life was inspired by his search for that spiritual knowledge. I construct lines and color combinations on a flat surface in order to express general beauty with the utmost awareness. So you see, he's taking something very simple. He's taking... The, the 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 very first elements of of a of a painter's toolkit you know the three primary colors line form and a canvas and trying to in that express a sense of balance uh, a, a, a sex of a sense of composition a sense of 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 
you know, uh, what we said, I said balance, but that idea of just where it can bring you a transcendent experience by looking at it. He's trying to take some very complex spiritual ideas and create a window uh, through, his, through his art by going back to the fundamentals. And I thought it was interesting that, that, all, that many of the different movements of painting that came out of this period were returns to fundamentals, asking what are, what are the important pieces of what we're putting together here. So for him, it was the color and the composition that he went exploring, that he tried to, to capture. So in our spiritual life, what are the fundamentals? You know, which is a good question because when you get down to the fundamentals, that's when everybody becomes friends. You know, uh, Swami Prabhupada, every year we have this in San Francisco, they had this big giant Labor Day, Memorial Day function. There'd be 1,200 people there. And we would always have guests from other religions come and speak at that. And uh, he would always give the same points in his opening lecture uh, on Memorial Day where he would say, the rule here today is to talk about what we agree on. And if we run out of things that we agree on, then we can talk about things that we disagree on. Because his idea was that as spiritual people, if we focus on what we agree on, that's going to be a very long conversation before we get to the things that we don't agree on. So to come back to the fundamentals of religion, what is religion? Religion is love. Religion is realization. Religion is finding your higher self. Those, those fundamental attributes right there would not be offensive to anybody and would build a very beautiful world uh, if we if we practiced on them uh, this week i started posting things on google plus uh, called uh, love could build a magical world and they're kind of little examples of people's acts of love that have done something rather odd in the world one story was of a guy in south america who rescued a penguin from uh uh, an oil slick down there, took it to his own home and bathed it and cleaned it up and fed it and nursed it back to health and then went and released it, didn't think of anything of it at all. But the next year when the penguins go through their migration, that penguin made came all the way back to his house, came back to his house and stayed with him for six weeks at the house and then went back on its way, just disappeared one day. And every year for the last, I don't know how, how long the article said, eight or ten years, Every year during his migration, that penguin comes back and stays with that man for six weeks on that, during that vacation. And the picture is of the man and the penguin sitting on the front porch you know, together, and he's feeding the little penguin, and the penguin's just kind of nuzzled up against him like penguins do. And I looked at that, and I thought, see, a simple act like that turned him into a Disney princess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just taking care of the, the penguins coming and visiting him on an annual basis. By, by, by taking these fundamental acts of love, these little things, that, and plugging them into a world that's in a desperate need for them, you know, to return to the fundamentals of our ideal, love itself, to raise people up, you know, to encourage people, to take them to a higher place. There's a second story. This one takes place in New York City. And uh, there was a, a, a crazy man ranting on the subway, and they have a picture of him very dangerous-looking guy, very angry-looking guy. And there was this old grandmother, and other people were kind of backing away and kind of making lots of room for him and just letting him go on. And this old woman reaches over and grabs his hand and holds his hand. And the picture 
is of after she did that. He has crouched down and is sitting next to her chair on the floor, leaning against her, completely quiet, completely calmed down. The ranting completely ended. And, uh, you know, he gets off some stops later, but she gets interviewed by the newspaper about what was doing that. And she says, I looked at him and all I could see was somebody that just needed to be touched. She says, so I touched him. She said, it was no big deal. It's the way I am. And that was all. And I thought about that because ranting people on subways is not an uncommon sight these days. And yet that reaction to it is utterly different, utterly different. The bravery that she, that she is an old, helpless old woman. I mean, she could have been, you know, beaten senseless. And certainly there's enough stories in the paper to put that fear into you. But she looked past that. She overcame that and reached out and made a connection with another human being, you know, and changed his life, changed his day, certainly, in a huge way, a very simple act. You know, that bumper sticker, you know, random acts of kindness. You know, that's a fundamental of our religion. That's a fundamental of the role that we play in this world. It's what we do as ambassadors, as it were, of truth, of takor, of sincerity and earnestness. That we're commissioned to do that, to be creative in that way. You've been given that task. You know, the, the, in the order, the, the motto for the order is for the good of humanity and our own realization. You know, it's both. We're not here just for our own realization. You know, just collecting karma points so that we can get that scale equaled out so we can zip out, you know, as soon as it's over. That's not what it's about. And actually, there's huge words of condemnation for that kind of thinking that's ultimate in selfishness. We're commissioned to be ambassadors of, of that kind of love building in this world. You know, and I, I, uh, you know, I challenge myself in that to, to, to come up with a, with a conscious way. You know, like when, when Mondrian's talking about his, his art and he says that he does it with the utmost awareness, that he's trying to create beauty with the utmost awareness in things, that that's a challenge for us. It's like not just to think in a blanket term like, oh, I should be a good person, okay, next point, but to actually with utmost awareness live like that so that you get up in the morning and you think, today I'm going to be looking for someone to help and make that part of your moment in the shrine, ma, takur. I'm looking for someone to help today. I'm looking for some way to serve you. Please make it obvious to me. You know, please make it obvious. And uh, I'll share with you just for encouragement, just to say that it does actually work. I had a morning like that not too many months ago. You know, that mother, it's, I was feeling, I wasn't actually praying because I was like, I'm looking for something nice to do. I was praying because I was feeling kind of selfish because I was like, you know, my life as a monk, it's pretty pretty creamy, pretty cool, <laughs> you know, it's like I get taken care of, I get to do my spiritual practice, I get to live in a beautiful place and, and spend my life on beautiful ideals, very meaningful things. And I was kind of telling Ma that I was like, I feel a little bit guilty about that. I feel like I should make more of an effort to get out of my comfort zone to give more, but I don't know what to do and whatnot. And so it's odd because right after that, and I'm presenting this like it's a magical thing, but it really wasn't. I came downstairs, and Swami A was talking to uh, this guy at the table that I'd never seen before. 
Turns out he's not a devotee. He lives in one of the apartment buildings not too far from here and as a new immigrant from, uh, from Africa and uh, was just at wit's end. His, his glasses had broken and uh, he couldn't see and without being able to see, he wasn't able to fill out job applications. And so he came here because he said, I didn't know where else to go. And so I just came across the street and so, uh, <laughs> you know, we ended up getting him a new pair of glasses and getting him set on. And we, that relationship is ongoing. He's still not a devotee of this place. But, but you know, they, they call regularly and stay in touch with us, you know, for something simple like that. And I just took that to heart that Mother, you know, the, paint it as you will. You know, the universe is ready to help you in your endeavor of being a loving person, being a caring person. And so with utmost awareness, return to the fundamentals of our spiritual life and practice random acts of kindness, random acts of worship during your day. Plan them, think about them, make them a focus. Not just, I'm going to be a nice person and then you just become another secretary, you know, who's not mean. (laughs) You know, become something more not just another nice person, but be someone who actually makes a difference, actually gives uh, in that way. The next one that I was going to look look at is uh, this artist named Yves Klein. He's another Frenchman, because most of these early modern artists were French. And uh, Yves Klein, I don't know if you've seen any of his work. Uh, when I talked about painting a single color on a canvas, that's that's him. He, uh, in the MoMA in New York City, the, the, the crowned hall of modern art, they have a giant painting, probably five or six feet by four or five feet, and it's just blue, just, <laughs> just a solid blue canvas, and, uh, and I believe it's called blue or monochrome, and, uh, you know, next to it, and it's, you know, several million dollars if you wanted to own that thing. And, uh, you know, you stand and you look at that, you're like, well... <laughs> What is this about? And again, you put it in its context. It's another artist challenging the notions of what is painting about. And uh, he says, in my monochromes, I challenge the notion of illusion in art, that art has to be an illusion, that I have to create something that looks like something it's not, you know, a 3D world or a 3D image or a flower. He says, I don't like the idea of being forced to create illusions. So I wanted to be free of all aspects of illusion and limit. I didn't want boundaries, I don't want lines, I don't want delusions, I don't want similarities. He said, I just wanted color. So he actually invented a color, got together with a chemist, and they invented Klein International Blue. And so he painted multiple canvases, (laughs) Klein Blue. It's a beautiful blue, I tell you. It's very much like your sweater, Pratiba. It's a nice dark blue like that. Anyway, it is very deep and it is very infinite. And he says, he says, it says, Klein likened monochrome painting to an open window to freedom. He worked with a chemist to develop his own particular brand of blue made from pure color pigment in a binding medium. It is called International Klein Blue. He adopted this hue as a means of evoking the immateriality and boundlessness of his own particular utopian vision of the world. So again, he is practicing one of the most fundamental values of Vedanta, freedom. You know, an act to to 
find a way expressing in his in his art that boundless infinite freedom of being that you're not not drawn in by the size of the canvas you're not stuck by the lines of boundary in the canvas you're not caught up in the illusion being produced on the canvas so to him it was this return to this pure sense of freedom you know and that our lives also should become a, a, a reflection of that pure freedom, you know, that, that freedom to, to reach out and touch somebody in the subway who's not a touchable kind of person, you know, the freedom to not be afraid because we're not bounded by the things that bring fear, you know, the idea of body, the idea of smallness, the idea of safety, the idea of security, you know, like Holy Mother, there's that wonderful story, and, and not just Holy Mother, but I don't know if many of you know the Peace Pilgrim, also tells a story very similarly. When Mother was crossing the meadow at, at dusk, she'd gotten lost from her friends, and sure enough, some thieves were coming her way. And she was so guileless that she just goes straight up to them and says, Oh, Ma, Pa, I'm lost. Can you please shelter me and take care of me during the night here? You know, I've lost my way from my friends. And these Dacoits that were going to rob her, didn't rob her. They gave her safe passage in the night and then helped her catch her friends in the morning the next morning. The Peace Pilgrim also has a similar story. She's a woman, an American woman, that just renounced the world one afternoon and walked out of her house and walked across the country several times uh, just only talking about freedom. She took nothing with her. She had her apron on. She had a comb in her apron. She had a pencil and a, and a little writing pad or something. That's all. She walked out of her suburban house and never went back, slept under bridges, slept you know, at people's houses. And she was crossing one of those stretches of highway across the desert you know, in the Midwest there. And uh, she was picked up by, uh, by a, a guy in the middle of the night. And uh, this guy becomes one of her disciples. But he says... In a, in a later interview in the book, The Peace Pilgrim, which we've got in the bookshop out there, uh, that his intentions, his initial intentions were evil. <laughs> they were not good. But he said when she got in the car and was so trusting that she just immediately curled up on the seat and laid her head on, on the shoulder rest and went to sleep, he said in the face of that absolute trust, that just her absolute knowing that we were at peace. He says, I, I couldn't go through with my plan. He said, and a matter of fact, I became so intrigued with who is this person, you know, that, that is like this, that sleeps so fearlessly, you know, in, in the company of a stranger on the road in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. So it's living like that, having a full trust in the good of humanity, you know, a freedom of, 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 of sense, a freedom of, of knowing that you are eternal, that you are infinite, that you don't have a limited amount of love to give. And to express that, find a way of expressing that. You know, it's, he, he certainly got very unconventional, just painting a canvas blue. Can you imagine that having never been done before, you do it and you take that to a gallery? Can you imagine? I mean, that's quite an act of courage to do that. I mean, most of us, wouldn't take the best picture we could paint to a gallery, right? Because, why? Well, it's not good enough. I don't want anybody to see it. This guy, this guy just painted a blue canvas and took it down to the gallery. And, like, 
here. This is art. This, this is my expression of the immaterial transcendence of my utopian vision. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> it worked. So try some crazy things in your spiritual life, you know, that are an expression of this kind of freedom. You know, I often allude to, to days when my spiritual life was just taking off, and I didn't want anybody else's anything, and so I created my own religion at that time. And I still carry on a lot of those ideas from that time because I just picked up little things here, and it was the weirdest menagerie of things. But it was fun, and it was enjoyable, and it gave me an idea about God that, that, that sometimes doesn't come across in the scriptures, mostly because we don't see it when it's there. If you read the scriptures, every page of the gospel, somebody's laughing. It's everywhere in the gospel. Religion's not about laughing these days. You know, Return to that. Return to that, where you spend some time, laugh with God at the things that run through your mind in a meditation. Laugh with God when you've been beguiled for a moment and, and lost track of your mantra, you know. Have fun like that. Come up with creative ways of, of expressing yourself to the divine, to have that relationship, and live accordingly. Because your life, as we've talked in, in lectures before, your life is that. It's a relationship. It's a constant dialogue between you and the divine. Everything that you do in a day, in that lecture we did on Nachiketas's fire, you know, where everything you do with this body, you're, you're putting on its sacrificial fire and burning that and offering that to your highest ideal. To live, as Mondrian says, with the utmost awareness about our purpose, about our sense. Swamiji says, he says, in art, interest must be centered on a principal theme, on an idea. There has to be a cohesive ideal at the center of a piece of art. And uh, the, there was a, a new, actually, well, Klein was, I guess you could call him a color field artist, but that's not really what he was about. But there are, there, there are uh, a, new, a new group of artists that came along called color field painters. And uh, Rothko is a big name. Uh, you probably have seen some of his stuff, maybe accidentally. He's, he's on a lot of book covers. And he just kind of takes a big canvas. They're usually about like, four feet wide and like five feet, maybe six feet long. They're pretty big. And they've got uh, squares with uh, kind of fuzzy edges. They're not, they're kind of loosely defined fields of color. Like in the, and then he'll have a bar of yellow and a bottom smaller square of brown or something. But he just puts them on, on the screen. Down here at the Phillips Collection, Gallery. If you haven't been there, that's a great one to start with. Fantastic gallery. You'll be amazed at the beautiful things in there. And they have a Rothko room where you can just sit in the middle and look at four walls filled with Rothko paintings. And uh, when I first looked at uh, one of his pieces of work, I, I thought, oh, this must be something to do with composition and color. You know, like he's finding proportions you know, and how these shapes relate to each other and stuff. And so I kind of thought, now oh, that's what it's about. And I was, I felt pretty good about having a good critic's angle on this. And then I went up and read the little drawing or the little blurb that he had written in there. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong. Anyway, I'll read this little portion from the Smithsonian's site here. He says, Rothko's work, which stacked rectangles of color, appear to float within the boundaries of the canvas, but directly 
staining the canvas with many thin washes of pigment and paying particular attention to the edges where the fields interact, he achieved the effect of light radiating from the image itself. This technique suited Rothko's metaphysical aims, to offer painting as a doorway into purely spiritual realms, making it as immaterial and evocative as music, and to directly communicate the most essential raw forms of human emotion. So we got three major artists in Western modern art whose primary drive is an expression of the spiritual, you know, the transcendent, that, that something which is beyond. Who has that idea of modern art? Who thinks that modern art has anything to do with spiritual anything? I mean, they're viewed, if you read about them in their textbooks and in my art history classes, they're put across as the most, you know, and some of them seriously were, but you know, just these flagrant uh, hedonists, you know. But who would have thought that at their center, the motive of their work, what they're trying to express, was something boundless and beautiful? Rothko resisted being labeled a color field painter, insisting that his art concerned the distillation of human experience, both tragic and ecstatic, to its purest form. His goal was to abandon any visual obstacles detracting from that one central idea or theme. Exactly what Vivekananda said is necessary for art, for good art. You know? And so then I looked at Rothko's paintings again, realizing that the aesthetic, he said, oh, actually it's the next paragraph here, he said, Rothko emphatically rejected the reading of his work in merely formal aesthetic terms insisting that he was not interested in the relationships of color or form or anything else. Rather, he used abstract means to express basic human emotions, tragedy, ecstasy, doom, and so on, earnestly striving to create an art of awe-inspiring intensity for a secular world. Those viewers who broke down and wept before his paintings, he stated, had the same religious experience I had when I painted them. So these beautiful, these beautiful notions, you know, to have that one central theme to your life. When you, when someone else looks at your life, because we all think, well, this is what my life's about. But the real test is, is it obvious to the people around you what your life is about? You know, is somebody going to say, oh, that person used love like a paintbrush. You know, they painted a world beautiful. They helped me so many times. You know, I remember when they took care of whatever, on and on. Do you have a central theme in your life that matches the fundamentals of your religion, of your spiritual life? Are they the same theme? The thing that you're known for? Is it a theme related directly to love, to caring, to giving, to building up, to strengthening, to raising up? Or are you just known for being good at your profession, which is not a bad thing to be known for? You know, but kind of when, when, when placed in the realm of higher ideals, it can, if, it's, if it's not finding those higher ideals as the expression of why you're good at your job, then it, it might not be the best, best of things to be known for. If you're good at your job because you really care about the people that you're taking care of, because you really are trying to do an act of worship, uh, that's a different matter. That's a tangent. But anyway, this idea, know what your theme is. Know what the central import is of your, of your life. 
this, this life as a canvas, as it were, this act of art that you will take you the length of your days to complete. When somebody looks at it, will they know what that painting is? Will they have a religious experience, <laughs> you know, looking at it like, wow, what a transcendent work of art that life was, you know? I've known a couple of folks like that, you know, in my life. Fortunate to have met a couple of people like that whose lives are works of art that I know that that's what they'll be remembered for. Art has its origin in the expression of some idea in whatever man produces. This is Swamiji. Where there is no expression of an idea, however much there may be a display of colors and so on, it cannot be styled as true art. Even the articles of everyday use such as water vessels or cups or saucers, should be used to express an idea. In the Paris exhibition, I saw a wonderful figure carved in marble. In explanation of the figure, the following words were inscribed underneath, art unveiling nature. That is how art sees the inner beauty of nature by drawing away with its own hands the covering veils. The work has been so designed as to indicate that the beauty of nature has not yet become fully unveiled, but the artist is fascinated, as it were, with the beauty of the little that has become manifest. One cannot refrain from praising the sculptor who has tried to express this exquisite idea. You should also try to produce something original like this. (laughs) So there's Swamiji, you know, saying that this expression of some central idea that will make even articles of everyday use acts of art. Of course, all my art historians know exactly who I'm going to next (laughs) for this. It's an artist named Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp. And uh, he's famous uh, for ready-made art. Found art is what it's also called. And he had the gall. You think Klein had gall to paint a canvas blue and, <laughs> and carry that into an art gallery for his, for his show. Duchamp took an old urinal <laughs> off of a wall and walked into a gallery and laid it on its side on the table and put a little tab by it that said fountain and, uh, and his name. And that was his, his work of art, his statement of art. First time it's ever been done, pretty amazing. You walk into a gallery today and look at that, you'd be like, why in the world (laughs) is there a urinal sitting on that table right there being presented as art? But it's his his idea. I mean, if you sit and look at it as art, you get a lot of very cool ideas out of it. Because here's something that's very low, probably the lowest that you can go, a urinal. That's the lowest form of material things on the planet probably right there. And he's taken that and put it in a gallery with Rothko's and (laughs) Klein's and everything hanging around it. Taking something and elevating it up as art, letting you look at the lines and the curve because it had a designer. Somebody with an art degree probably designed the first one. (laughs) You know? So he's raising it up and looking at it with different eyes. Looking at it with a different set of assumptions, with a different set of values that takes something very low and sees it as very high. Does this sound familiar at all? How that how Takur saw the world like that, that untouchable man that came, my favorite story that I repeat all the time, 
that, that untouchable man that came to visit him and Thakur saw him in prostrates, full-on Ashtanga Pranam in front of this untouchable. And of course the guy's astounded. You know the story. And Thakur says, no, don't worry, it's not like that. I, saw, I see God first, and only after a few moments do I see you. you know? So we see, we see, we see Duchamp you know, taking, <laughs> taking this, this, this form, this thing that's very low, this everyday thing that none of us would look at with any kind of appreciation, and raising it up into art with an artist's eye and saying, no, look at it again. Look at it. In essence, it's a fountain, you know. <laughs> look at the lines. Look at the shape. Look at the colors. Look at the form it sits in space, you know. I've laid it on its side to look different. And, you know, practice that. One of the fundamentals of your religion is seeing God in all things, seeing the divine in all things. So when that woman on the bus reached out and touched that raving lunatic, she wasn't seeing a raving lunatic because you don't reach out to touch raving lunatics. She saw a man who needed to be touched because she saw with a heart. She saw with something different. You know, We're called to see with our heart. We're called to serve a world with our heart and to live like that. And that kind of heart takes, sees things that are very common and very low and sees them as essentially God, as essentially beautiful, as essentially worthwhile. And if anybody in here could master that, what, what kind of difference would you make in the world if any one of us could just live according to even that ideal for a while? You know, that's the ideal of a Mother Teresa. You know, that's the ideal of a Jesus. That's the ideal of a Buddha to live with that kind of love, that kind of compassion, that kind of understanding, to take something found and make it art. He says, in many ways, the ready-made is the direct ancestor of all conceptual art that followed, and it allowed artists to consider and refine the crafting and presentation of an idea rather than focusing on material means. Conceptual art in the 60s and 70s focused on the dematerialization of the art object in the phrase of critic Lucy Lippard, in favor of documentation of ideas, actions, and processes. She says that, that, that they were trying to completely divorce art from a product, you know, that was somehow validated by the name behind it or by the process behind it or by the final thing. That In the 60s and 70s, they wanted a complete dematerialization of that. And the way to bypass all of that is to take an object that the artist finds beautiful, that the artist somehow appreciates, and to take that and set it down and say, this, this is art. This is art. It's not, it's not a thing to be bought and sold. You know, it's not a material accomplishment. It's not an exercise of talent and skill. It's just something essentially beautiful put before you to look at as something essentially beautiful. So this, this inspired a whole generation of, of artists that <laughs> went out and found all kinds of odd things. Uh, one of the funniest ones, a, a, a female artist, uh, took her bed and, and the surrounding three feet and duplicated that in the art museum 
you know, and uh, the critic that I was reading was talking about the, the public's first reactions to that. And actually, a, a, a housewife in the, in the audience, not the original audience, but one of the audiences that went and saw that, attacked it by hiring a house cleaner <laughs> to clean it in protest of it as art. She's like, that's not art. That's not thing. So this goes on. This is, this is art in uh, the world, you know, its role. To go out there and find these things, to take a look at them, expose yourself to them so that you can get a different take on your life. The thing that saves somebody from being trapped by, by, by these things in the world is to look at them with God awareness. So if you go to the art museum, don't just go to see pretty things. Take, take your ideal with you. Take God, take Buddha, take Jesus, take Thakur. And look at the art in their light. Read the little tags to find out what the artist was thinking. Look at the dates to see what the context was. And the more you learn, the more fascinating it gets. You know? And when you find, it's quite startling to me to find that one of the essentials of Western culture is founded on beautiful spiritual principles. You know That these artists are trying to do something very similar to what I'm trying to do in my life, which is a realization, a manifestation of something divine something transcendent, something, something high and beautiful, you know, and to take that. He who meditates on God for many days has substance in him, has divine power in him. Further, he who sings well, plays well on a musical instrument, or has mastered any one art, has in him real substance and power of God. This is the view of the Gita, it is said in the Chandi that he who is endowed with physical beauty has in him substance and the power of God. This is Tukwur in the gospel, you know, reminding us that these things that are beautiful, these, these creations that are the results of talent, you know, and skill and, and investment of time and energy, that there's, there's God there to be seen, you know, that, 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 uh, that is what protects you, you know, that, that is what takes something worldly and makes it otherworldly, <laughs> you know, is to take it and to see it in that light, in that light. And so that's the challenge. That's the whole point, really, of the lecture this morning, is to go out, be bold, broaden your horizons, an open mind is the best kind of mind, and Vedanta allows the most open of minds. So use that mind and, and put some new energies and new perspectives into your spiritual life. Make it interesting, again. Make it fruitful so that it becomes the obvious theme of your life and a recognizable work of art by the people around you as you manifest your highest ideal, that which you are. Because the woman I love lives inside of you, I lean as close to your body with my words as I can, and I think of you all the time, my dear pilgrim, because the one I love goes with you wherever you go. Hafiz will always be near. If you sat before me, wayfarer, with your aura bright from your many charms, my lips could resist rushing to you and needing to befriend your blushed cheek, but my eyes... My eyes can no longer hide the wondrous fact of who you really are. 
the beautiful one whom I adore, has pitched his royal tent inside of you, so I will always lean my heart as close to your soul as I can. Let's take a few moments to reflect. <clears throat> 